0: So the book of hebrews i 'm not going to spend a lot of time on authorship and date and all that kind of stuff because in some places in some ways i don 't really think that 's as important as a lot what 's going on in the book of Hebrews too. You should have read all that stuff on your own already so um, and if you haven 't that 's made available on the website but the, the whole point of Hebrews is we don 't really know who the author is ultimately so Some people think it's Paul. Some people think it's Barnabas. Some people think it's Apollos. Some people think it's some kind of co-authorship. I absolutely do not think it's Paul. If you've really spent any time in Paul's letters, his vocabulary and his style is so drastically different than Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that has no parallel. Um, It is a completely unique book. It's a book that I find a lot of people say that they really like, but they don't really understand. Because Hebrews is written with a highly Eastern mindset. And that Eastern mindset is very foreign to us. And so where we're so used to A equals B equals C, um, and we, this linear thought, there's Hebrews is organic. It's more like we're going to go on this trail, come back to the center of Christ. Go on that trail, come back to the center of Christ. And we're not used to that. This is different in that sense. So the authorship is totally different. When was it written? We don't really know either. That's true with a lot of first, Second Testament books, is that we know it was written sometime between 55 A.D. and 70 A.D., most of the books. Um, probably First Corinthians was the first book ever written, 55 A.D., somewhere around there. But one thing we do know is it was written before 70 A.D. And one of the reasons we probably are pretty accurate in that one is that The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And one of the most central points that the author of Hebrews is making is that Christ has replaced the temple and the sacrificial system. And the temple has been destroyed. That's definitely an argument you're going to make. You're going to throw that in. I mean, Christ predicted the destruction of the temple in His ministry, and now it's destroyed. And you're arguing that Christ has replaced the temple, and you never mention it? So the likelihood is the temple is still there. Especially when he talks about it, when we get into chapter nine in great detail, means he's probably assuming that somebody's been to the temple before; they have an idea and familiarity with it. So, who is it being written to? Probably a combination of Jewish Christians and was and Gentile Christians. Um, To really, a lot of scholars will spend pages upon pages dissecting who it is, and really, in the end, who really knows? The point is, they're Christians. Um, either way, they're either Gentiles who are really attracted to the First Testament and the structure. They came out of a Gentile paganism world where there's no structure. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And they're probably attracted to the ritualistic structure of Judaism. And so they're tempted to dive back into Judaism and into all of its ritualistic and laws. And the author is saying, No, 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 no. Christ is superior to that. Or they're a Jew who's left it all, come to Christianity, but maybe the freedom is too overwhelming. <laughs> they want to go back to what is familiar. And in the ancient world, to abandon Judaism basically means your family said you're dead to us, and they never talk to you. And it's one thing to be very attracted to Christ in the beginning, and then when you jump into Christianity and you've lost all your friends and family and maybe possibly your job, it's very tempted to go back into your old lifestyle. And the author's trying to say, No, 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 no. Christ is superior to anything that you've lost. As sad as it is, as heartbreaking as it is, Christ is superior to anything that you've ever lost. And so this is kind of the idea. There's two major purposes going on in the book of Hebrews. First, there's many purposes, but the first one is that Christ is the King and High Priest. Now, if those concepts don't fully make sense yet, they will. By the time we get done with this book. Um, the idea of king is absolute sovereign ruler over things. And the idea of priest means someone who mediates their, your a relationship with other people to God. And the idea is that Christ is both of these. Which is very important to understand, because according to law, it is illegal to hold both offices. You are not allowed, punishable by death. In fact, when Saul, as king, tried to act like a priest, God took his kingship away and then killed him. And so that's one of the arguments the author of Hebrews is going to make, is how can Christ be righteous and king and priest, yet the law says no, punishable by death. And so it's one of the major themes. Because here's the thing, if God was only king, we would fear Him. Because we have rebelled against His authority, we have rebelled against His kingdom, we have destroyed His kingdom. We have allowed the enemy in in the garden. And is wreak havoc. And under any kingship and any law, we would all be executed. And it's one of the points that Romans and Hebrews is going to make, is that God has overlooked the punishment of sins. We should have all just died. Bam. The minute you're born, you sin. Bam. You're dead. But God kept overlooking that. But because He overlooked that, He violated His justice. He ceased to be just. You had to realize it's great to have a merciful, forgiving God. But to have a merciful, forgiving God means that He's no longer just however he is. So therefore, he comes in as high priest. And as high priest, we no longer fear him as king, because now he's our mediator. He's the one that allows us to have access to him through his son. And so as king, we fear. But as high priest, we can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God. And so with those, he brings it together. And this is the whole key with Christ. Because with Christ, the axes of the cross meet together. With Christ you have the justice of God being satisfied when he kills his own son for all the sins of the world and no longer can God ever be declared unjust anymore because he has punished violently the penalty for sin. But at the same time it is his son as high priest who's dying on the cross which means we don't have to die which means he's also maintaining his love and grace and mercy at the same time. And so you have to understand in the First Testament, you either have a king that you fear and destroys you, or a high priest that forgives you, but he's not just. And it's only as Christ, as both on the cross, can we have a king who is just, but at the same time a high priest who shows us love and grace and mercy. And that's the first and foremost purpose in the book of Hebrews. And he's going to spend the entire book unpacking those concepts. And that's even the point that Romans is kind of making. In Romans chapter 3, we're told... That God overlooked all the past sins in order to satisfy his justice on Christ. Okay? And so that's the point here. The second purpose is the warning passages. These are the fun ones. This is the controversy. Especially when we get to chapter 6. It's the most controversial passage probably in the entire Bible. Um, although it doesn't have to be controversial. And so there's basically five warning passages, and each one gets more and more and more and more severe. And so the whole point here is, this is what we forget. Yes, Jesus Christ has ratcheted up the grace and the love from the First Testament. Under the First Testament, it was law. And under the law, there is only death and punishment. And sometimes the God of the First Testament, Yahweh, looks kind of like a mean, cruel, vindictive God as he's punishing harshly. I do not believe that's true. If you really study the First Testament, you understand there's a lot of grace there that people don't get. But at the same time, the punishments are harsh. And so you come to Christ, and Christ is dying on the cross for your sins. He's bringing the little children to him and sitting on his lap. He's He's forgiving tax collectors and prostitutes. And it's very tempting to start thinking, wow, The God of the Second Testament is way more loving than the First Testament, even though that's not true. It's the same God. But it's easy. We subconsciously begin to follow like, oh, it was harsh back then, but now with Christ it's love and grace. But you have to understand something. Yes, the grace and the love has ratcheted up through Christ. We can now experience more grace, more love, more mercy, more intimacy, deeper relationships with Christ. However, to violate A more intimate, more loving relationship now means that also the judgments have ratcheted up. And that's the part we forget in a Second Testament church. Is that we've forgotten that yes, the grace has ratcheted up, but now to spit on that grace, to thumb it, to abuse it, to just violate it, means that the punishment is far greater now. Just like the punishment that you might have for a young child, one of your children, is not gonna be that great because they're just beginning to learn the world. They don't know the rules. But if you have an eighteen year old who's rebelling against you after eighteen years of developing an intimate relationship, the punishments are a little harsher because they're rebelling and violating a greater love than what they knew at four years old. And it's the same thing with Christ. And so that's what we forget is that the second coming of Jesus Christ, that's a harsh it's a harsh judgment. And we need to remember that, yes, the point of Hebrews is that grace has been ratcheted up. But so has the judgment. If you violate, ignore, reject that grace. And so those are the two themes that the author is going to maintain. The first theme is Christ as king and priest. And the second one is grace has been ratcheted up, so has judgments. So do not ignore such a great access to God that we have now. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a summary. Um, So there's an outline in your notes. Um, You don't have the entire outline that I gave you, but it is on the website. One of the things I want to point out is, as we go through Hebrews, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes it feels like authors of the books of the Bible just willy-nilly go back and forth between calling Him Jesus and calling Him Christ, and then calling Him Jesus Christ, and you're like, when do they decide to use Jesus, and when do they decide to use Christ? One of the ways is that Jesus emphasizes his humanity and Christ usually emphasizes his kingship. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word mashach, Messiah. Okay? And so Messiah communicated kingship. Most of the prophecies through the First Testament is Messiah's king, the anointed king, the, the true Davidic king who can actually do what David failed to do and all the other kings. And so this is why when you come to 1 John, 1 John says that anyone who is, must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh. And that phrase is cramped packed because 1 John is saying you must embrace that He is Jesus human, that He is Christ the King Messiah, the Son of God in that He really truly is innately God, and that he came in the flesh as a human and mocked a oneness. If you don't embrace king, man, God, then there is no salvation. And so Jesus usually emphasizes the humanity. Christ emphasizes the kingship. When they put them together, they're trying to emphasize the God-man. That he is both God and he is both man. And so one of the things I've tried to do in this outline, is you will notice in the Roman numerals, it will say, Christ the Son is superior to the prophets. Because in those two chapters, the author is mostly using the word Christ. In fact, he doesn't really use the word Jesus. You get the Roman numeral 2, it says, Jesus Christ. Because he actually uses the words Jesus and Christ in those sections. So anywhere in the outline, and a Roman numeral or a letter A or B or C, you see the word Jesus or Christ, I'm letting you know that in those verses, that's what the author is using. He's focusing on Jesus in these verses. He's focusing on Christ. And so he wants you to see the humanity at that point. He wants you to see the kingship at that point. Or he wants you to see both of them together. Now he's always maintaining both. But he's usually emphasizing one or the other at a certain point in his argument. So I will try to remember to point that out. But if I get, that's the pattern that you see in the outline is that the outline will let you know what word he's focusing on most of the time in his argument, if you don't want to take the time to do a Bible gateway search. Okay, so that's the outline. So let us begin.